1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. My friends, how many of you have read the book Tuesdays with Morrie, or Finding Chica, or The Five People You Meet in Heaven, or The Next Person You Meet in Heaven? Today is a very special conversation for me. It is one that I have wanted to have ever since I picked up this man's book way back in 2016, that radically transformed the way that I should see the world. And this is a conversation that I'll forever hold dear to my heart, and for good reason. I have one of my favorite authors on the show today. For those of you that don't know who Mitch Album is, he's the author of numerous books of fiction and nonfiction, which have collectively sold, and get this, more than 40 million copies in 47 languages worldwide. That is one heck of an achievement, and for damn good reason. He's a great, great writer. He has written seven number one New York Times bestsellers, including one of my favorite books of all time, Tuesdays with Murray, the best-selling memoir of all time, which topped the list of four straight years. Uh, it earned him award-winning uh, TV film, stage plays, screenplays, a nationally syndicated newspaper column, and a musical, believe it or not. Through his work at the Detroit Free Press, he was included into both the National Sports Media Association and Michigan Sports Halls of Fame, and he's a recipient of the 2010 Red Smith Award for Lifetime Achievement after best-selling memoir, Finding Chica, and Human Touch, the weekly serial written and published online in real time to raise funds for, for pandemic relief. His latest book that I highly encourage you all to go and get a copy of, it is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's available everywhere books are sold right now, so definitely go and get a copy of that. Uh, Mitch also founded and oversees, uh, say Detroit, a consortium of nine different charitable operations in his hometown, including a non for profit uh, dessert shop and food product line to ra- to raise funds for Detroit's most undeserved citizens. He also operates an orphanage in Haiti, which he visits monthly. Mitch Album has such a great heart for people and and helping. And it's evidently reflected not only in in the work that he does in writing books, but also for the non-for-profits that he raises a lot of funds for. And if you didn't know the story behind the man that does all this incredible work, this is a conversation for all of you. He. Truly, truly is someone that I highly, highly respect and forever will. Um, it was a real privilege and an honor to actually get to spend time with Mitch. And I hope that you guys help support Mitch and his work by getting a copy of his book. If you haven't read Tuesdays with Mori, I highly encourage you to go and do that as well. It is such a great book to read. Same with Finding Chica, I cried all the way through. Not lying, it is such a emotional read uh, and we do talk about uh, his inspiration for writing Finding Chica. Uh, spoiler alert, it's emotional. <laughs> but anyway, my friends, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. If you do, please share it around to your friends and family. Let everyone know about this one as well. Also, my friends, uh, before you go, don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories of none other than Mitch album. Thanks, thanks for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. I have to share a little story with you and my audience before we dive into your backstory. So 2016 version of Jay, the very naive, very proud uh version of me. Um, came across your book, uh Tuesdays with Maury. And it literally flipped my entire perspective on my life upside down. <laughs> so I just wanted to personally thank you for writing that book and for getting it in the hands of so many people. And I'm so grateful that I actually came across it in the first place.
0: Well, it's uh interesting to hear and thank you for that. And uh I guess that's only fair, since Maury sort of did the same thing with me in terms of flipping my life around. Only I think it happened to me a little. Based on what I'm looking at you, I think it happened to me a little later in my life than it might have happened to you. So good for you for figuring it out earlier than I did. I was I was 37. I don't think you're that old. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but yeah, thank you for that. I'm glad to hear it had that that effect.
1: It's a it's a real honor to be speaking to you. And um, the very first question that I do have for you is a question that I normally ask people on all my, all my guests and all my shows, which is what does success look like for you?
0: Well, I became successful uh, a little later in my life than, you know, some people who have this magnitude of success. Uh, I was, uh, my first experiences were failure. I, I, a lot of people, may or may not know, maybe not in Australia, but I wanted to be a musician. I never thought about writing. My whole life was going to be a musician. I was going to either play, perform, or produce. And I went into that full speed, and it didn't work out. And, you know, the lights just did not turn green for me. It wasn't a lack of effort. I tried. Uh, You know, I worked hard around the clock. I went into every band, every audition, everything. But it just... It just didn't happen as it doesn't happen, I'm sure for many people. And the sting of that and having to give up on that walk away from something that I thought was my life plan and have to sort of just, you know, create a whole new life plan um, doesn't inspire confidence. You go into a new life plan with hope, but as you just said, Jay, you know, that cocky version of yourself just got clunked on the head with a big two by four and You're not cocky anymore. And so I approached writing as just bottom rung thing. Okay, I I have not been preparing my whole life for this. I wasn't in a writing band when I was 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. I didn't study writing like I studied music. I didn't do any of that. So I have no right to expect anything big to happen here for me. And I came at it very humbly. And then it's and it started very slowly. And I, you know, I was freelance and had to go back to school and all that kind of stuff. Worked for free for a number of months and all. But then when I became a sports writer, um, you know, I was still relatively young. And then things did start to happen quickly, uh, success-wise. And I, you know, was blessed to get some recognition and some awards. And I wrote some sports books. And you know, within that field, uh, was pretty well known. But that was. Probably not something that any of your listeners have any idea about. So all those years that went by, I was a sports writer and the sports writing here, sports broadcasting in America is a world with a dome on it. You know, you can get up to the top of the dome, but that's about it. You know, uh, and it wasn't until I was 37 that I wrote Tuesdays with Maury and it wasn't until I was um, 39 that it came out. And wasn't until I was 40 or 41 that it started to really become this thing selling and change. So success for me was was a long time in coming. And then that book, I just wrote to pay Maury's medical bills. And I intended not to keep any of the money. And the money they gave us, you know, you get an advanced for writing a book. I gave that all to Maury. So I wasn't able to make anything from that book. And when the book started to make more money than the advance, I went to Charlotte. Um, Maury's widow and said, I said, I never planned on making any money. So you should just take all this money. And she said, well, I I don't know what to do with it because I don't. So we formed a sort of partnership. And to this day, half of all that money still goes to their family. uh, And on my end, goes into a foundation part of it to, to what's called Tuesdays with Mitch Foundation helps me do a lot of charity work. So, even that success wasn't financial. It was more like, you know, well, people know who you are now. And so, um, you know, it was slow in coming. And what it means to me now, at my age, is the ability to help other people. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly what it means. It means I have, if I make a phone call, I might be able to get through to somebody, where, whereas they might not. And I can get somebody a doctor or I can get call attention to an issue. Or I have the financial means to, uh, you know, found an orphanage in Haiti, which is, the, you know, my biggest passion in life right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, you know, it's never, I live in the same house. I'm talking to you right now in the same house before I wrote Tuesdays with Maury as now. Uh, I might as well be driving the same car. My cars are, you know, decades old and well, not decades, but a dec- more than a decade. And, um, I'm wearing about the same clothes that I was wearing back then too. So it never manifested itself in anything material, uh, to speak of, but it does enable you to, um, do things that you want to do and that you're passionate about.
1: I appreciate you sharing that story. It's quite, it's quite humbling for me to hear because why I do what I do now is to help people as well. And you're right. Like sometimes you you want life to go a certain way but kind of it's funny because god kind of redirects you in the path that he wants you to go on and that's what i've had but like i resisted and i just yeah that's where the pride and the ego also came into play as well um which didn't end well for me
0: <laughs> you'll be doing okay you look fairly healthy and you're hosting a nice show so uh the the great John Lennon quote, you know, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. You know, that has been in the story of my life and almost every major thing that has happened in my life that has mattered the most has taken me by utter and complete surprise.
1: Mm. Where do you find the inspiration to write the kind of books that you do write today? Well, I,
0: it's probably the same place that I've always found the inspiration for my stories. I, I am inspired in nonfiction by people who move me, mm-hmm. and uh, and the stories that I hear people tell. And I was always a kid that listened to stories. Uh, you know, it's funny when you analyze your life, Jay, and you sometimes you need to live long enough to be able to look back on your early life and say, oh now that makes sense why I did what I did. But when you're in your 20s or 30s, you, you know you, you haven't lived long enough to understand how those things are going to fit in. Mm. So what I mean by that, I every Thanksgiving, I used to sit at the table. Thanksgiving is a big holiday here, you know, big fa- feast, family feast. And we always had a really big one. And all the relatives came, all my old uncles and aunts from the old country and all that. And I look back on it and after dinner was served, the, the old people started telling stories and all the other kids ran from the table. Like, let's just go downstairs and play, let's get away from them, we don't get stuck at the table. And I always just sat there like this and I would just you know listen to them tell their stories. And I always enjoyed listening to their stories. I, I just enjoyed the rhythm and the cadence of it. And I had a loud family and I learned um, that if you wanna hold the audience, you got to get to the point of the story. So, for example, I had an aunt, you know, who used to tell, she got bogged down in the stupidest details. So she would say, well, wasn't it back in 1945? Or maybe it was 40. No, may, no, it was, it was 46. No, it was 45. And I will go, shut up. We don't want to hear you. <laughs> and then my uncle, Eddie, he would say, so there we were in the war, see? And we were coming over the hill. And the smoke was up there and the guys were there, the shooting was going on. And I said, wow, he's got the crowd, you know, look at, they're all hanging on the, on the edge. And he ended up being the inspiration for my first novel, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. Eddie in The Five People You Meet in Heaven was based on my uncle Eddie, who used to tell me stories amongst which was a story about how he died one night while he was, um, going for open heart surgery. And they lost him. You know how you lose a patient on the table. They lost him for a few seconds or whatever it was. And he said that he remembered floating above the table, looking down and seeing all his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of the bed. Of course, being a kid, you know, you say, well, what'd you do, Uncle Ed? What'd you do? And being who he was, a salty old sailor, he said, what'd I do? I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for any of you yet, you know. And apparently they flew back to heaven and he went back into his body and he lived another 10 years or whatever. But I, that became the seed of the five people we meet in heaven because I always thought, well, when you die, you're going to see your relatives are going to be waiting for you. And then I took that contour. I said, well, what if it's not your relatives? Though? What if it's like some of your relatives, but some might be just somebody you had some influence on for five seconds in your life and you changed their life? Forever and they change yours and they're waiting for you. So little did I know that a sitting at the table, you know, would lead to my first novel. And so I say all of my inspiration comes from like the people I've met and the stories they have told me that somehow sit in the back of my brain until it's time for me to expel them through a new creative form, that Mm -hmm. being a novel or that being a nonfiction book or or, or whatever. Um, and I you can't plan on that. You just you just the one thing you can't do is be shy and you can't be a person who doesn't meet other people, because if you don't meet other people, you're not going to be inspired to do anything else. So I've kind of always put myself out there and I meet a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people. And sure enough, you know, they end up mixing around and whatever this mess is in my head and eventually coming out.
1: I can relate to you on the loving stories aspect. I mean, I was always a curious kid and I'd always ask adults questions, never really got on well with kids my own age for some reason, always loved listening to adults. And my grandfather, especially the way he told stories was, it it would enamor me. Like I just like soak it all up, you know? Um, So I can, I can relate to that front. But one thing that I am curious about Mitch is, When would you say has been your most vulnerable moment in writing any of your books?
0: Oh, I can tell you that easily. The last one that I had out called Finding Chica. Yeah. Uh, The book I ever wrote, um, most vulnerable that I had to be. Credit to my editor, Karen Rinaldi, who said to me in some of the earlier passages, you got to dig deeper and you got to admit more about yourself. This is great about Chica, your little girl and all that, but you got to talk about who you were, and you're gonna have to bring some of the stuff that maybe you don't like about yourself. Um, you know, including the fact that you know, like I was responsible for delaying my wife and I having children until we couldn't have them anymore, basically, and and uh, you know, and and felt guilty about that for years. And then having to deal with a child who uh, Chico, for people who don't know, was a little girl from our orphanage yeah. who uh, was born three days before the terrible earthquake of 2010. Now there's the terrible earthquake of 2021. Uh, and she came to us and, you know, she developed a brain tumor when she was five after having lived with us for three years. And we brought her to America thinking that we could just get it taken care of and that would be it. And she never went home. And so she became our daughter. And for two years, we traveled around the world trying to find a cure. And in the midst of that, she just broke through everything that I had. And I think my wife had any kind of defenses. And we could not have loved a child more if she looked exactly like us. And to lose her, to have that, to finally have that joy in your life, and then to lose it after two years um, in agonizing fashion was... I, I, I actually, Jay, I got sick, physically sick writing that book, uh, towards the end of it. Um, I started to develop like what I thought was neurological issues. You know, I was shaking, I was trembling. I was getting these weird headaches. I would, I would get shivers and, 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 and heat flashes. I'd be dizzy when I was walking. And I ended up going to a lot of doctors and something the matter with me. And they did a battery of tests and and finally, uh, they asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm writing this book about, and finishing this book. And they said, well, maybe, you know, that has something to do with it. That and the 10 cups of coffee that you've been drinking. Just to, and, and of course they were right. Uh, but um, even after it came out, uh, it came out later that year and I went on tour to talk about it. And unfortunately I had to speak about it mm-hmm. every night. I had to tell the story which was funny and you know, Chica was hysterical and I had videos and I had footage and I had music montages that were behind me and I would throw to them. And, and, and it, was a, it was a laughing, crying event for everybody. But at the very end, I, I would always have to say about how she died and I would always, I'd end up crying every single night that I went out and spoke and I got sick again. And I thought I had a brain tumor. I had a, a pounding in the back of my head that was so strong for a month that I said, this, there has to be something there. And then finally, the neurologist said to me, you know, like, you can't keep going out and telling the story night after night around the, around the country and around the world. You, you, you know, we know you want to do it and you want to, you know, spread word about the book, but it's, it's killing you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had to stop. And then COVID came and took care of that for me, which was maybe, you know, fate's way of saying, you know, stay at home. Uh, but easily that book, Most Vulnerable, Most Difficult.
1: I appreciate you being vulnerable again and sharing that because when I did read Finding Chica, it was an emotional roller coaster ride for myself and then when we get to the end I was like no. And I was just like an absolute mess more than I was a mess when I read Tuesdays with Morrie and more than I was a mess when I read uh, uh the 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 next five people you meet in heaven and then the book after that one that you wrote. So you know, you do write very powerful and emotional books, but they do pack a very good punch, if I can say that. Like they they carry so many great lessons for people to use in their own life. And, yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, it's honestly amazing um, that you do have that ability, you know. So uh, for a young person uh, especially, I like to take that on board, I think it's like it's very needful. So. Um, if you could, Mitch, go back to your younger version of yourself, say your early 20s, and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you give yourself? Children. Yeah.
0: Uh, I think I thought for a long time that, you know, I was on a very fast career trajectory. And, uh, and I just thought that I would lose the momentum, you know, if, if I stopped first to get married and second to have children. I, I I, lost the marriage battle eventually, but not till I was 37. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, had dated my wife, Janine, uh, for seven years. And I kept thinking, well, we can wait a few more years to, to have kids. And, and then it was too late. And uh, given how big children are in my life right now, which they are the absolute dominant factor. Um, I spend more time with the kids that we have in our orphanage in Haiti and kids here in Detroit. I run charities here in Detroit too, but the Haiti thing is really where my heart is. I'm there every month. <coughs> there sometimes two weeks out of the month. Um, and we've got 53 children that we raise there. And I've got a number of them are up here in the house with me now. And, and, and we've got four in university right down the road that are here year round and more coming every year. Um, and I would have liked to have been able to experience that with my own kids when I was young enough to tackle them. You know, now I, you know, I kicked soccer ball a little bit, but I say, and they say, come on, Mr. Mitch, they call me, come on, Mr. Mitch, play basketball with us. I said, I really would like to, but I'm going to rip a muscle and then I'm going to be out for six months. And, you know, that's the older person talking You know, I would have liked to have seen what it was like as a younger parent. So I would have advised myself that. But I think everybody has something that they would go back to their younger self and say, do this or do that, unless you've led a very blessed life um, or a very um, unaware one. Um, You know, that's, I remember reading once Mahatma Gandhi said a a million brilliant things, but one that doesn't get a lot of attention, but I I always thought was really brilliant was they asked him, About some issue, I don't want it. And and when he said what it was, they said, "Well, that's different than what you said, you know, three years ago." And he and he said, "Well, I would hope that as I get smarter, I have different opinions about the things that I said before. I would hope I wouldn't answer the same way, or that would mean I wasn't growing." Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the way that I've looked at it too. You know, it's easy for you to ask me a question like that now, and easy for me to answer, but. You know, that just shows you that life is growth and you learn things as you get older. Probably if we do this interview 20 years from now, if God gives me 20 more years and you say, if you could go back to the version that was the first time on the show, what would you advise yourself? I'd still be telling myself to do something differently that I didn't do.
1: To be honest with you, I can't wait for that time. (laughs) I think it'd be another great conversation for it yeah yeah well i i know that our time has almost come to an end but i really do appreciate you making the time you want to take a
0: few more minutes
1: thank you i really do appreciate that your your new book sorry what was that
0: i realize i've been doing a lot of the talking
1: here so <laughs> no it's, it's all good i appreciate you actually doing a lot of the talking saves me having to do it <laughs> uh, which i'm not very good at but um you have this new book out called the stranger in a lifeboat and it's basically, so imagine if we called on God for help and he, he actually appeared. Uh, I want to ask you, um, so when in your life, when you least expected God to show up that he has in a big way and it's radically transformed who you are and your viewpoints on him?
0: Uh, well, I'll split the question in half. Uh, Because he showed up in my life uh, several times in the last few years, Um, but it didn't change my viewpoint on him because I think I had already come to a conclusion about it at that point. And and the conclusion was that there is no telling when God is going to show up in your life. Um, You'll know after it happens, you know. It's like your parents used to say to you, you know, when are ready, I, you'll know when I tell you, you know, <laughs> you'll know, when are we gonna get there? You'll know when I tell you we got there, you know, and God certainly has the right to say that to us too. But um, the first time was, uh, well, not the first time, uh, I, I, I could probably go back. I had a car crashed when I was 20 years old that in every way, shape or form should have killed me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, my, I was in a car, I pulled out to take a left-hand turn, and then the traffic suddenly slowed, so I was stuck in the middle of the street. It was raining outside. I was on a a slope of a hill that was coming down. A big moving truck, a moving truck, you know how big those things are, was coming down the hill and could not stop with the rain, and smashed right into me on the driver's side. And I I didn't have a seatbelt on, I was a college student, and I got thrown across the uh, car, landed in the bottom of the uh, car well, of, this, of the passenger seat. And I just remember hearing people, you know, and then got spun around, hit another car, spun around in another car. And I remember hearing people kind of walk into the car like in hushed tones, like, is somebody in there? Is he dead? And I was fine. I was just crumbled by I had some cuts on my face from some broken glass, but I was fine. I got it and I walked back to college. And when I looked at the pictures, because the, they towed the car and they towed it. And when they sent me the pictures, it was an accordion. It just looked like that, just up and down. And I walked away from it. And so I always thought, all right, there's a reason for that. you know. And, and there have been many moments like that in my life. But when I went to Haiti after the earthquake and was brought there, I'd never been to Haiti. I barely could find it on a map. I just kind of went on a, Oh, I should help this guy out. You know, I should probably help him I'll take him down there on, on a, on a, on a little plane that we arranged for. And then I came in contact with those kids um, who now, like I say, dominate my life. I ended up admitting, you know, 50 plus new children to the orphanage and take them in from under two years old. And they're going to be, you know, and then educate them all the way through and they're going to be with us, you know, through college and then come back. And I mean, they're going to be my life forever. I mean, I I'm dozens and dozens and dozens of children and then their children's children. Um, clearly God was, you know, putting me in a place. And that's God for me. That's what God mostly does is he puts me in the place and says, okay, now let's see what you're going to do with this one, you know? And um, and I I get it. It's like someone is yelling, you know, go, you know? And, and I sort of say, it's my, okay, you put me here. Now I have to do something about it. And I find myself always saying, I must be here for a reason. God's challenging me to now do something with that reason. And that was probably the biggest one. There have been a few times I've had some run-ins with some very serious illnesses that I've prayed to get out of. And, um, and I have, Uh, and so I have to say that, you know, that comes from God as well. So, and there'll be some more times coming forward, I'm sure. Uh, But I won't know them in advance and I don't try to guess them. I'm a big believer in man plans, God laughs. You know that expression, man plans, God laughs. And uh, I'm not anxious to make God laugh that way anyhow. So,
1: I can relate to you on many of the things you just said, because even though I am young, I can relate to the, the car story, um, more so on the fact that I got to the point in my life where I just decided to end it all. Uh, and I tried to commit suicide by driving my car at full speed, 130, 140 kilometers straight for the telegraph pole. That It was a stretch of road. And I just took my hands off the wheel, put my foot down the accelerator and just said, all right, I'm ready to go. And I watched as a steering wheel that was turned to the left-hand side, which was directly headed towards the telegraph pole. I watched it turn, turn away back onto the straight path, part of the road. I didn't even feel my foot come off the accelerator onto the brake and my car came to a complete stop in the middle of the the road. And I'm just sitting in there like, what in the world did I just try to do? And I broke down. So I, I really do believe that God saved me in that moment. And he said, I'm not finished with you yet. I have bigger plans in store for you. You may not understand or realize them at the moment, but I want to lead you there. Just trust me. It will be okay. Um, And, yeah, my health as well. There have been many moments where I've almost died because of my health, and that's taught me to strengthen my faith in who God is. And, you know, there were times that I did walk away from God because I got angry. I got frustrated. I got fed up. And um, he just kept saying, "I want you back. I'm going to bring you back. You know, you're you're not getting too far away from me." <laughs>
0: Those are that's strong stuff and fascinating stuff, and um, it is what I sort of wanted to explore in this uh, in this book. I don't know why, you know, I don't write about God a lot, even though you know my books have been used by you know, religions and churches and things like that. Uh, but even the five people you meet in heaven, mm-hmm. uh, which is more of an allegory, you know, than, than a religious book. It's more of a fable. Um, you know, God is only mentioned in it once, even though we're talking about heaven and, you know, you sort of sense that God is there. I did write a book about faith a number of years ago called have a little faith. It was a, it was a nonfiction book about a priest and a rabbi who I knew. Um, but for some reason it came to me like, uh, And maybe after coming off a Chique where you call for God. And I said, well, what if, you know, what if you call for God in the direst moment and God appears in some form and then you don't believe it, you know, or then you start to apply human, human measures to godly presence. And so I thought, well, what would be a good setting for that? I thought, well, what could be better than a lifeboat? You know, uh, I've always been fascinated by castaway stories. I love those movies you know, survival. I read all those books about how, how people live for. I, I, I'd be dead in five minutes. I'd be five <laughs> minutes.
1: <laughs> Sorry.
0: There's no question about it. But these people who, who live, you know, oh, well, you know, so I, I took the patch and I, I fixed it up and then I put it together and I made condensation from the rain and I had clean water and then I made a little still. And then I, and then I, you know, I caught a fish and I gutted it and I took out the the, the liver and the, <laughs> I don't know any about, it. I wouldn't know anything like that, but I had to read up on all of it. And uh, I thought, well, let's put everybody in a lifeboat and let's have somebody appear after things have gotten really bad and say, you know, I'm God. And and they say, well, you're God. Are you going to save us? And God, as God is wont to do, in all forms, at least in the you know uh, the Judeo-Christian history, uh, it's a it's there's a it's a condition. Uh, and he says to them, if you believe, all of you in this boat believe I am who I say I am, then I'll save you. But everybody in the boat has to believe it, and of course, some of these people on the boat—it was a luxury yacht that exploded—and you got a lot of really rich, egotistical people, and you got people who work in the kitchen, and they're all mixed together. And not all of them buy his story, and so—and the other ones are saying, "Well, if you don't believe, we're not going to be saved, or whatever." And so the whole thing about faith and how we rely on one another—you know there's not enough people in church today. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to get the rain that we need, and 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 it goes on from there. And it's a it's a mystery. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to write, and it was much different than Chica. You know, it's much more of a almost a movie, you know, and a story. And and yet it it asks a very fundamental question. And and what does God look like, and what do we expect God to look like, and and would we accept, you know, if 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 he had flowing white hair and a beard and was a hundred feet tall, then would we say that's God versus, you know, uh, you know, a seven year old. And so. Um, It was fun to explore that, and I think, I hope that it'll find, I hope it's one of those questions that uh, everybody has asked themselves, and they say, oh, there's a book that's kind of written about that. Okay, let me see if I agree with the answers that they came up with, because, uh, you know, I think five people you meet in heaven answers a question or tries to answer a question one way of what happens when we die, who do we meet, Mm -hmm. and for one more day is a question of we got one day back with somebody? Who would it be? What would we do with them? You know, and all of my books sort of have the first phone call from heaven. What if we could actually make a phone call to somebody who'd already died? You know, these are sort of things that I think of that I figure everybody else is probably thinking this thought at some point or another. And I figure everybody else has probably thought, what would, what would happen if I said, God, please save me, save me. And somebody appears and says, okay, I'm here. And you go, no, you, you, no, wait a minute. You know, I can I got the wrong number uh so that's what the book is about and it talks you know speaks to some of the issues that we're just talking about here
1: i can't wait to get my hands on it it comes out november 2nd i believe in the states people can go and pre-order a copy right now which i highly encourage people to do if you have enjoyed this conversation so far mitch i am mindful of your time i do have two quick final questions if that is okay with you uh they'll be very very short this one is, uh, yeah, we'll see how we go. Uh, if you could ask a question to anyone alive or dead, who would it be, why, and what question would you ask them?
0: Anyone alive or dead?
1: Anyone alive or dead?
0: Uh, wow. Um, I guess, I mean, I could come up with a thousand answers, but I'll come up with one now. Uh, Maury, mm-hmm. and I like asked Maury, um, what do you think of all that has happened here? I mean, with everything that's happened in my career in many different ways and all the things about that book was the first one that catapulted me and, and, and uh, my name to any recognition, certainly to be heard of in Australia. And, uh, but of course it was Maury who did it, not me. And so wherever I might be known, Maury is better known and Maury has had a bigger influence. So I'd like to ask him, you know, what do you think of all this? And am I, am I doing an okay job of representing you? Am I, you know, did I handle it right? You know, am I spreading the message that you sort of wanted me to spread? You know, Maury never read a word of Tuesdays with Maury, not one word. I didn't start writing it until after he died. And I always, you know, I guess the first question I would think I would say is what do you think of the book? You, know, <laughs> if you don't have a copy up here. I have one right here and here I'll sit here while you read it. So I guess he would be my choice.
1: Wow. My final question for you, Mitch is my all time favorite question. I ask everyone at the end, it's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument, but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your hundredth birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life?
0: Uh, That I cared about other people more about more than I cared about myself. And that I, despite my flaws of which there are many, uh, The people that I wanted to influence were influenced positively and not negatively. I wrote, I think it was in the five people we meet in heaven, but I wrote of parents once. I don't know what I was thinking. I was much younger then, but I wrote, all parents damage their children. Uh, And then the children are like panes of glass and that sometimes you just get fingerprints on them, uh, Mm -hmm. but sometimes you crack a hole in them and can really ruin them. And I realized that the truth of any adult trying to have influence on younger people or maybe even a writer trying to have influence on his readers. And I would hope that whatever was reflected with all my mistakes, and I've made many and all my flaws, that in the end, people who came in contact with me were positively influenced or people who read my stories were positively influenced. They came out of them hopeful or inspired or thinking better of people than rather worse of people. It's the reason I don't write negative stories is the reason I don't write stories that just, I know critics like it better when there are no happy endings, but that doesn't inspire me when I read a book. It just reminds me of how grim the, uh, the world can be sometimes. And there's plenty of grim to go around. Uh, I would like to, to know that I inspired hope in people and that the children who I'm now thrust into a position to have a lot of influence over grow up with good hearts. And I tell them all, you know, because they say, Mr. Mitch, Mr. Mitch, you know, we're going to be a writer like you or we're going to have a house. And I said, I don't care what any of you do or whatever. None of that will make me proud. But if, if you're kind and you're humble and you help other kids the way that we're helping you right now, you can never make me more proud than that. And I say that to them, Jay, every single day of my life that I'm there. And I hope it gets through. And so if I were 100, by that point, many of them would be parents, grandparents even. And we'd know if it sunk in. And uh, and I would say that I had led a good life.
1: It's an amazing send-off message. Mitch Album, thank you so much for your time, your stories, and everything that you're doing in the world. And for coming on the Storybox podcast and spending time with me today. Really good. Thanks, Jake. Best of luck to you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, i greatly appreciate if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of The Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom. And don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.